Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, Poddleters. I hope you're all well as usual. I'm really excited about this episode. It is with Nisha Dolan, who is the author of Exciting Times, which is now a Sunday Times bestseller. Um, It's a book that I reviewed recently on my Instagram. So if you haven't seen that, you can always go and have a look at that to get a little bit of a feel of what the book is about. I do have to outline that I guess there are a couple of spoilers in this episode, not massively, and I still think you should read it. But if you wanted to wait and read the book first, which you 100% should do, then obviously go and do that. But I'm so excited to have spoken to Nisha. I wanted to talk to her about the process of writing a book um, and what it was like for her. This is her debut novel and it's, you know, it's going to be one of the biggest books of the year. It kind of already is. And I really wanted to speak to someone who's had that sort of success. And she's so down to earth about the writing process. She's got a really interesting take on life. And to be honest, I was actually quite nervous interviewing her. So there's a few times when I fumble over my words and I wish I could do it again and and do it better. But actually, I think the conversation that we have is really honest and really lovely. And I just absolutely love speaking to her. To be honest, I was slightly starstruck because I just loved the book so much so I just thought it was such a treat to be able to pick her brain and find out how she feels about it and the idea behind this episode is that whilst we're in quarantine I know that this whole conversation around you know let's do something productive or let's start our dream project but maybe actually if there is something you want to do and if that isn't too intimidating maybe listening to someone speak about it in such a down-to-earth way might encourage you to realize that you do have the tools to just take a step and start working towards something if you don't want to do that and you just want to nap and chill or get on with your work as usual, that's also absolutely fine. Um, but I hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you so much for listening. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Nisha Dolan. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I can't tell you how excited I am to speak to you. Um, it is a shame that we're having to do it over the internet, but nevertheless, so happy to speak to you. So for people who don't know who you are and what you do, could you give us a little introduction? Sure. I'm a novelist and my first novel, Exciting Times, is just recently out. Um, it's about a young Irish woman who goes to teach English as a second language in Hong Kong and then finds herself in two slightly fraught love entanglements. The first of those is with a detached British banker named Julian and the second is with a Hong Konger called Edith who is a bit more earnest about everything. So you've literally, as we're speaking, just got into the Sunday Times bestseller list. And before I even read the book, there was lots of comparisons to Sally Rooney, which must have felt like one big boots to fill. But I wonder if that was kind of annoying to have that comparison thrust upon you. How did you how did you feel about this? This is your like first book and the reaction's been, I imagine, quite huge. Was that what you were anticipating or was it a bit of a shock? I think it's easier to detach myself from all that in general because I'm not involved in any kind of literary circles. I never know what the next big thing is meant to be. The way I find my next read is usually just by browsing in bookshops or if there's a topic I want to read about, I'll Google it. So I think it was easier for me in that sense. I'd say if I had dreams of being launched as my own talent and then people kept comparing me to someone else, I would be really annoyed. But I just try not to set too much store by what other people think of me in general, because I know you can't control what they write about you anyway, so you might as well just not let it affect you, really. That is the best attitude to have, and I do try to live by that, but sometimes it is um, harder than one might think. Yeah, like, to be completely honest, I can start with that approach, but every time another journalist asks me the same question about it, you feel a bit more disingenuous saying I don't think about it ever when they've just prompted you to think about it so there is that air of no one wanting to think that they are personally involved in doing it so they'll never do it directly they'll do it like how do you feel about this annoying thing that all the other journalists are doing and it's like you could simply not it's very possible to ask me many other things 
Yeah, you're so right. I've just completely dipped my toe in that. So I, I hold my hands up and I, I'm sorry for adding to that noise. And by anyone individually does it, it's just the cumulative effect. Is like, But I'm like that about all questions. And I'm, I'm sure this is everyone when you ask the same thing over and over, but it's the other person's first time asking it. You want to give them a proper answer because it's not their fault that someone else has already asked it. But you're also like, I already said this. It's so hard to have the same enthusiasm saying it again, you know? Yeah, I can completely imagine that. What's a question that, is, has anyone asked you a question yet about the book which really threw you? Because obviously you're going to know the characters and the story better than anyone else. But has anyone read it in a way that you maybe, I guess you can write sometimes and not necessarily know where that that feeling's come from. Has anyone been really super insightful and said something and you're like, shit, how did they get that from it? Or has that not happened yet? I think probably the questions I find hardest to answer are ones about my intentions, but that's largely because I don't intend to have them when I write. So when people phrase things like, why was it important to you to do this? And I'm like, it wasn't important to me. I just wanted to get another hundred words down and it was the first answer that came to me. But um, in terms of insight, I think a lot of the connections people are drawing between different things that happen in the novel are really interesting. The parallels between the vignettes in the language school and then the relationships. And I'm really interested as well in the responses to the textuality of it. So the layers of Ava's messages and the messages from the other characters and then how that aligns with her narration because a lot of people have had very different takes on that so far. And I, I just find it fascinating to observe. And I, I mean, I don't think I'm an especially good literary critic, definitely not compared to people who do it professionally. So there is that element of accepting that other people are probably going to write better about my book than I ever could. Oh, but I think you're an impeccable writer and not least it's for some of the things that you omit. I think that's what I liked. The, the, the conversation sometimes felt quite jarring and stilted, but I liked it. It felt like... It wasn't overly, you weren't explaining what was going on. And I found that really like indulgent. I can't explain it. I really sank into it because you have to, it's not an easy book to write. You're, you're like evidently very well written. So I think you're being really humble in saying that you couldn't, you know, critique literature of anyone else's because some of it honestly made me feel stupid. And I wrote, when I wrote about after reading the book, I said, I loved that. There was something really enjoyable about having a really academic, really kind of a bit spiteful, a bit cynical, but really a sassy, such a shit word, but a woman that made me feel inferior because she was so clever and because her witticisms and the way that she looked at life that I think that's that's kind of uplifting as opposed to this normal rhetoric we get about women who are like oh they had it all and she was beautiful and she was born into this family or whatever I found that to be a really lovely framing compared to what we normally get about young women growing up um the, the start the start of the book you talk about how Ava was kind of not enjoying sex in Dublin and a lot of that was down to um the Eighth Amendment right. So when did you when when did you start writing this book? Because obviously the laws the law was passed and it was changed. Was that last year? Um the referendum was in 2018, but it took a while for the changes to come into effect, obviously. But I started the book in 2017 and I wrote the first draft quite quickly. So Obviously, that was all entirely under the ambience of it not only still being in place, but there being no concrete prospect of a referendum, although the momentum was building up to getting one. But I think as well, it's important to have fiction that's grounded in the experiences of living under something, even after it's changed. I get this frustration around that and around the LGBT stuff in the book where people are like, but wasn't there marriage in 2015? And it's like, first of all, a third of the country voted no. Second of all, I was born before 2015. Therefore, it is still possible to have an entire sense of yourself that cloaked in very different beliefs to the ones that we now hope are moving in a better direction. Yeah, and I would say that's a fairly lazy criticism because we can say, you know, that we've got feminism and we've come so far, but the real reality of the kind of the way that socially and culturally we feel about some of these issues, despite laws having changed, it doesn't mean that the ideology for the majority of the population has changed. Um, so that feels like a bit of a silly thing to say and also even if it's anachronistic with today the, the book still first of all it's fiction so you can you can write whatever you want to write in whatever time frame but I do think it was a, a really important I actually found it really interesting because I, I didn't grow up in Ireland and I've always 
grown up with the idea that if I did get pregnant and should I need to get an abortion, that would be an option for me. And to read, I, I, I was very aware of like the, the referendum happening, but I hadn't really read anything like this where it was from a really sort of, um, it, it, it is politicized, but it was from an angle that was really interesting to read. Um, and that the, the way that it transformed sex for the character, I found actually much more a fascinating angle rather than the angle of like, oh, I've got pregnant and how do I deal with it? It was actually the the side of what we don't hear, which is how does it actually impact our sexuality and the way that we live our lives? Um, so I think that was a really important p- part to have in a book like this. Yeah, and I think it's not unlike what we were saying earlier about how when a big change happens, you need time to process. That's true of changes in any kind of direction. So especially for something like that, where you might have a necessarily limited view of what it's like to not have grown up under that law, to not have it affect everything in your life. And the perspective that you can get, even from realising that it's possible to be different and then from seeing it actually be different, might forge the space that we need to see that treatment of it more in fiction. So I think that's another reason, like you were saying, that direct correlation with what's happening now isn't something we should always look for in books because if that's the case we're not going to get that large consideration that often only comes after the fact yeah I completely agree and also you there you have so many themes within the book which is what I really really liked but it was done in a very natural way I didn't feel like the book was thematic or that you were trying to get across um like tick points for wokeness or whatever it didn't feel like that at all it very much felt it felt very millennial which I hope you don't find insulting because I'm the most millennial person ever and I wear that with a, a, a badge of pride um and I felt like it was it was true to, true to what I feel reality is and and I spoke to you about this previously before we started recording but Ava for me was such a grounded character she was so I felt you know people like I felt attacked I felt attacked at points because there was parts of her the most cynical and the most sardonic and I was like oh my god that's me when I'm like hormonal when I'm being a bit or the parts of me that I you know try to squirrel away in favor of trying to pretend that I'm this feminine goddess or whatever I'm supposed to be I found that character so important when you set out to write her did did you have any idea of who she was going to be did you have an inclination to write a woman like that or was that just how she formed the minute that you started writing? Yeah, I think I mostly consulted my own tastes in writing her and was conscious as I went of what bits I find boring or tiresome or unnecessary in other narrators or just which bits I don't find fresh and new. And even though I might enjoy reading them, I don't see any need to recreate it. So a lot of passages where narrators explain exactly how they're feeling or speculate at length about things that they couldn't possibly know about another character. I just didn't feel like writing that. I wanted to recreate what I believe is the likely headspace of a 22-year-old abroad. And like you say, that does have a slightly solipsistic slant. But the nice thing about fiction is you don't need to be arguing for something to exist when you put it down on the page. Its depiction can be a starting point for a discussion, or it can just let people feel seen, which is a wonderful and cathartic experience in what we keep calling these dark times. I wanted to ask you, because my biggest fear if I ever write a book, especially fiction, is that someone's going to say to me, so how much of this is based on your own life? Is that a a question that people have started putting to you? Because I feel like as women, it's almost always the first question and I think it's really redundant question anyway because anything we write fiction or non-fiction has to come from some form of experience or but but it doesn't have to be us is that something that you've faced like now that the book's out were you expecting those kind of questions are you getting those kind of questions and is it difficult to be like can you just judge my work rather than try and judge me alongside it too closely yeah like I sometimes have a habit of answering the question that I want to have been asked. <laughs> so I just, sometimes when people ask me something like that, I'm like, well, all my command of English language is necessarily experiential because you learn it through contact with other speakers, be that written or spoken. Ergo, the entire book can only be experiential also. But when I'm not feeling like just being really annoying, um, yeah, my answer is just, look, obviously the only way that you can make a book out of stuff is by knowing what it's like but that's as much from other books as it is from anything that's ever happened to me and I feel like 
we just have so many different forms of failure to take women seriously. It's an especially annoying one, but it's also easier to shut down than other ones. I think people who wouldn't ask me that question do devote whole paragraphs to why the characters were unlikable with the assumption that that's a female artist's intention to endear you to the people they choose to depict. So, it you know, it's annoying, but I think there's just such a spate of things that you know are going to happen if you're a woman making things and and trying to weather it as best I can, I guess. That's honestly the best answer I've ever heard. And I genuinely want to write it down. It's so good. When when you were saying you're coming from experiences, had you been to Hong Kong? Why Hong Kong? I'm intrigued. I don't know much about it at all. So I actually found that another really interesting, like Dublin versus Hong Kong isn't a, a match that I've necessarily come across before. Yeah, I lived in Hong Kong for around a year, but if I'm honest, like pretty much any decision with my fiction, it just starts with feeling like writing about one thing as opposed to another thing. So the only places I'd lived long enough to have any idea of how to describe them were Dublin and Hong Kong. So that was a fairly quick decision. Um, but then I do hope that the setting isn't superficial because the way that I write tends to be that the initial decision is flippant, but then what flows from it isn't or suddenly isn't trying to be. So looking back, I could reverse engineer it and say, well, Hong Kong was a really good place to bring out those linguistic themes. Hong Kong was a really good place to interrogate the place of white Irish people in our simplistic narratives of imperialism or whatever but any of that could only ever come after that initial quick decision which was just Hong Kong's great I want to write a book there I absolutely love the way and like your the way you talk is still just as expert as the way that you write like the way that you unpick things and you unravel things. it's honestly I I love it um what I want to ask you a bit more now is, because I don't want to give too much away about the story of the book, and I'm sure everyone's going to go out and read it, but for this to be your first book, and, and because we're in this weird quarantine time, I'm so bored of saying this weird time, but it is a time when we're getting a lot of messaging about, you know, let's be productive, start that project, do that thing, which I think on the one hand, it can be quite invigorating for some people. And then I think on the other hand, it can feel like a ton of bricks coming down when we're already in, you know, really high stress situation. We often hear lots of fairy tales about people writing novels. And I think a lot of people imagine that you start at the beginning and you finish at the end and you hand it in and then it's published. Um, I know that's not the case, but I wanted to ask you a bit more about, you know, wh- how did you start this book? What was your what was your journey with it? And when did you decide that you wanted to write a novel? And what is the real gritty truth about starting a big tr- project like this? So I think... Deciding that I wanted to write a novel was definitely the first thing, um, but that's been such a long-term aspect of my approach to books because novels are by far the art form that I enjoy the most out of literature. It's not that I don't appreciate poetry and plays and all the rest of it, but novels are what I've lost myself the most in, have read the most of, and therefore when I sit down to write, it's the form that most immediately presents itself to me and I find myself actively saying why it shouldn't be a novel because it's so intuitive to make it one. So that was always the goal, really. And I think as well, if you're interested in something like that and you want to understand other people, it's really good to try to do your own because then you'll see a lot more of what they were about. And even if your own attempt doesn't turn out very good, it means that any novels you read going forward will be a lot more obvious to you in their devices. And then you can use that to hopefully learn to write a better one someday. But then in terms of this specific novel, I started with a scene in a rooftop bar in Hong Kong. And I think that exact environment interested me because it was somewhere that was different to ones I'd been in Ireland, but in some subtle ways and then some blatant ones. And I just went from there. But I think this is one of those things about writing that's really individual. The way I've heard Sadie Smith break it down is there are macro planners and micromanagers. And once you've worked out which you are, your life will be a lot easier. So the macro managers, sorry, the micromanagers are people like me who just start with something small and flesh it out and don't look much further ahead than they have to. And then the macro people do much better if they write out an outline Unfortunately, I suspect the only way to find out what you are is to attempt to write a novel the other way and have a fail miserably. So uh, good luck. But (laughs) I think, you know, you don't have to arrive at a final decision about that sort of thing. But I think being alert as you try to 
What makes you more excited when you sit down to write? Is it having a big idea that you know you're going to write through slowly or is it just luxuriating in something small? Because I think the number one thing to keep in mind when writing a novel is literally just what will make me enjoy this process enough to finish it. So with that in mind, what, how long did it take you start to finish? I wanted to ask you, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, did you know what type of novel it was going to be? But listening to that, um, and I love Sadie Smith as well, but listening to that, it sounds as though it was, as you said, it was just piece by piece. So how long did it take you from start to finish? And also, did you write chapters which were then rejiggled around? Like, did you write it in a linear fashion or when the edit happened, was it all jumbled back around? I always find that really interesting to think that, you know, bits don't ever come to you in a linear fashion. I wonder if that's how it happened for you. Yeah, um, I think the way I'd describe it is, because it's so based around the characters, a lot of the time I just had different scenes in mind or different snippets of dialogue that I could see them exchanging. And because I was writing around a full-time job and I didn't have much time, I just tended to write whatever I thought I could get the most words out of in a given moment, which was usually those bits that I was looking forward to. But then I'd arrange them in the manuscript so that it still looked linear, if that makes sense. So if I had a conversation between Ava and Edith, her girlfriend, but it came after Edith gets introduced and I hadn't written that bit yet, then I'd write it, but I'd like put an asterisk above it and then leave some spaces to just keep in my brain that there are meant to be loads and loads of scenes in between. And that whole thing was pretty quick. So it took about five months and... The way I tend to work is my levels of energy just for everything in life tend to fluctuate a lot. So on average, I think that works out at like maybe 500 to 1,000 words a day, but it wasn't always like that. Like I tried to get out a minimum, but then there were some weeks where I did nothing and then other weeks where I did a lot. So then once I had that draft, I just kind of dipped in and out of it, I think, because if you've read the book, this won't surprise you at all. I'm the kind of person who can spend five hours stressing out over a comma, give or take. It's really, really important for me not to get into stylistic edits until I have absolutely have to, because otherwise I'll just never achieve anything. So I tried to stay on that special level and just working out what the scenes were doing. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this. So one of the themes that runs through the book, which I think you were saying people had some commentary on how it was sort of meta, that there is this examination of the complexities of the English language matched with kind of Ava's sometimes very short, um, very unemotional conversations with Julian and then her like draft text messages. It, it definitely does have that feeling. There's definitely a lot of layers and depth there. But that part about the English language was what completely made me feel like an absolute idiot because I really don't think that first of all I think my grammar is probably one of my worst traits I'm really awful at it um and there were so many things that I didn't understand I actually wanted to ask you if did you learn because I did English at uni and I hazard to say I'm evidently no nowhere near as much as an expert as you are of the English language was this something that you learned more in Dublin or is this just something that you then went on to study more or have you just always had a really good grasp of it because there's so many things in there that I was like oh my god even I wouldn't know that but maybe that's because as you talk about the duality of like British English English and then Irish English is that something that is common in Ireland to be aware of those um, differences? Well let's put it this way um, one piece of evidence that I furnished when people ask me do I think that girls are underdiagnosed with autism is when I was 12 I became obsessed with punctuation and read books and books about semicolons and stuff so uh, in my case it was just this intense special interest that I've cultivated and taken part in ever since really but I don't think it would be a natural feature of just being an Irish person in Ireland to be aware of grammar and punctuation and all the rest of it so definitely a lot of what I studied has informed it but then there was a lot of freedom within my degree to choose to do modules on linguistics and stuff and I'm sure if I hadn't organically been interested in that information and hadn't also been interested in languages besides English I would have known a lot less but then you also don't want to imply that there's any kind of hierarchy to that information because my impression of Ava is that she's relatively quick on the uptake with that stuff. So she doesn't know a lot when she goes to Hong Kong because she wasn't um, <laughs> like me, this intensely focused autistic child who's obsessed with semicolons for some reason. But she takes that in pretty quickly because 
she seems to have the kind of mind that can cope easily with that input. But indirect language and reading between the lines seems to come a lot harder to, to her. And that's an area of communication that we're reluctant to openly discuss is difficult for some people. So I think she definitely has a, a skill lag in that respect that I think the intellectual capacity to sit down and go, okay, this is the subjunctive actually makes worse because then it's really hard to admit to yourself that you're just bad at understanding other people sometimes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I have to apologize for my naivety because I didn't realize that you were autistic. Is that the correct way of phrasing that? I never really know. Um, is this something that maybe that's my lack of research, but is this something that you have spoken about and is it something that you ever would want to speak about more? Because I guess there's no, that's there's so many topics that you cover in the book and I guess that's one of the, the things that isn't mentioned, but I don't know how I'm trying to phrase this without sounding like a, a really naive person. What? How has that shaped your tackling of moving into writing? Is it something that has been a barrier, or it, by all means, it sounds like, if anything, it's just made you an even better writer? But what was the response? Did you ever have any kind of negative experiences with people's preconceptions around that at all? Well, it, ableism exists, so. My life has undoubtedly been harder because of that, but I'm completely here for neurodiversity and I never want to imply that there even is a possible version of myself who isn't autistic, let alone that that version would be preferable. So it's almost a different plane of thought to the ones that I'm on to think about whether it's helped me writing, if that makes sense, because it's like asking, has being Irish helped you write? Like, it's just me. And I, you know, and it goes even deeper than that, because I can just about picture a version of me with the same kind of brain and thought processes who grew up in Italy, and maybe had slightly different opinions on some things, but was broadly similar in how they processed the world. Whereas in even trying to see a version of yourself outside how you understand the present version, you just quickly get overwhelmed by that possibility because it is your whole brain and you can only have ideas with your brain. So any ideas that I have about my autism are within my very autistic brain. So I think uh, it's an interesting one that I'm still thinking a lot about. And I'd love to see more autistic representation in literature, obviously, because it feels like such a burden. And that's one of the reasons that maybe it isn't something that always comes to the fore to think of yourself as trying to define such a different experience from person to person you know yeah and it's interesting because you bring up ableism and obviously the first thing that comes to mind when we have these conversations is is like a a physical disability and evidently what you just highlighted with your autism is if someone like people can see that as disabling but what you're doing and whether or not as you say it's a massive task you don't want to end up feeling like you're the spokesperson for autism but it definitely seems like you would elevate hopefully in people's minds and understanding that I mean, the rhetoric, because we see, and we know like Greta Thunberg's autistic and she's, I think she's doing something great. I actually talked once I was talking about how it was, to, to, well, I don't want this to be triggering, but with autism, like the only conversation we really used to hear around it was how, you know, people don't do immunizations because their children might be autistic as if it was this awful thing. So I guess even if obviously you don't want to stand up and be a spokesperson for it, maybe one really incredible byproduct of your writing will be that people will be able to see into a different um, mindset when it comes to things like autism which they don't understand as you say understanding neurodiversity outside people who are neurotypical so that I, I understand why that must be so tricky for you but you're right I don't know that many other writers or maybe if they are they wouldn't have said because there is that stigma attached it's such a complex issue yeah, definitely. And you're wary at the same time of playing too much into inspiration narratives that imply 
maybe autism is okay sometimes if you can write books. Like, I think the point of representation isn't to try to associate good qualities with any given group of people. It's just to show that they're everywhere. So people on the spectrum do all kinds of things and exist in all kinds of areas of life. And what I'd really like to come from, like you say, the great increase in representation that we are seeing with figures like Greta is just a broader level of cutting people some slack. Like one thing that really gets to me is when people will just openly discuss and mock someone else's facial expressions or gestures or all the rest of it. Because that affects people well beyond those on the spectrum. It's just not a nice thing to fixate on because it's completely morally neutral what someone's face does when you talk to them. And yet, even at quite high levels of discourse, we will openly scrutinise whether horrendous right-wing politicians who have objectively enacted policies that harm many people, whether they were doing the right face while they did that. It's just mad. And I think it would improve our understanding of pretty much everything to just cut all that irrelevant non-verbal stuff out of it because it's not useful for me and I don't think it's useful for anyone. Uh, Yeah, I love what you said there about cutting people's slack because I think it's a huge theme of the book in that what you do deal with, the topics that you do deal with, you do do it with great, um, not kindness, but real, like there's no judgment in the whole book. So there's obviously the themes of talking around, you know, what it would like to be gay in Ireland or the, the stigmas that might exist around certain ways of acting but it within the book and within the characters that you create there is so much space for people to do things which we could maybe conventionally see like you can't behave like this or how even I love Ava's relationship with money and the transactional relationship she has with that and the way that you look at how Julian looks at money. like there's so many conversations in there whether it be about class or politics or sexuality and that cutting people slack is exactly it that is what you've allowed room for. I wonder if that was just your natural disposition coming forwards. So you evidently are, are very um, open-minded is also really not the right thing, but I don't know if you, what you mean. If that was, I imagine that your natural proclivity is towards inclusivity and that that came out in the book or was that, I know you said you don't like being asked about intentions, so I'm trying not to ask you that, um, but have I said anything that makes sense there? <laughs> Yeah, so I think my approach to empathy in life and when I write fiction is perhaps more even-handed than if it were informed more by the non-verbal stuff. So for me, empathy, and this is completely different from person to person, but for me, empathy is an extremely cognitive thing where I just think about the reasons that someone might be acting a certain way and whether that's something that I can sympathise with even if I don't agree And it's not affected very much by how their voice sounds to me or by, uh, you know, things like that, that I just don't see as relevant to the question of whether on the facts of it, they're acting correctly. So I think that's interesting that you said that the book is fair, because one way or another, people's assessment of whether it's nice to the characters tends to be that they're treated in that same uniform way. And then I think how nice or not nice you think that uniform treatment is will affect whether you think the book just hates everyone or likes everyone or is in between on it. But I think, for instance, my treatment of Ava and Julian is pretty even. And that might be that they're both not nice people, or it might be that they're both doing the best that they can in difficult circumstances or whatever. But perhaps especially the way the books like this are often discussed, what you're expecting is for one of them to be set out as the toxic partner when it's okay to just not have someone be the love of your life and to write about it in fairly clinical terms, I think, because it's not that I don't greatly enjoy fiction that explores different forms of empathy and of forming allegiances and stuff. In fact, that's been crucial to me to um, relate to people who aren't autistic and I think that's one of the reasons that I read books so much as a kid, just to get people in a way where there wasn't any immediate pressure to get it right. But I think the fiction that I write is informed much more by that panoramic, here's all of them, I'll try as best I can to not distort what they're doing, even though I inevitably still will. And, you know, part of that's because of how I see the world. But part of it, I think, is as well as just from my own influence. It's like, I love George Eliot. I love the individual details of Middlemarch, but also just that idea of having your little ant farm. And it's not that you can't zero in on a particular ant from time to time, but just trying as best you can to 
write a book where the characters, if they were real people, would look at it and say, yeah, I did do that. That's, that's, I think, I think it comes exactly across as you, as you meant it to. I think that, that the reason why I felt like, God, I really feel quite seen here was it felt real, the thoughts and feelings and also the play, the kind of tussle that Ava has with Julian and the way that she kind of tries to make him, she tries to provoke feeling in him, even though she, I've a hundred percent done that. Like that, that was, I've never seen that played out. And I always used to wonder if that was weird, but I've a hundred percent wanted someone to like me more than I like them. And what I think what's interesting is I don't dislike Ava. I think I think that she was a, a Raw's also, I'm trying to use words that aren't so perfunctory, but she was a character that was unadorned with kind of falsities. And that's what I think my real friends are like and what women I know are like. And we might present ourselves differently on Instagram or movies might make us a bit more shiny. But for the reality of it, we are all just coping with life and whether that's, you know, you want to feel like you're being loved, but it, there was a definite, tr- there's such truth to it. And that's what I thought the empathy came from in, in that we can't put people on a pedestal and expect them to behave a certain way and only like people when they fit into a really specific set of parameters. And that's where I thought your your characters were given much more freedom. And I liked that they were smart and and that there was an edge to them because people aren't inherently nice all the time. And I think that to give your characters room to do things which we might see as a bit, you know, a bit cheeky or a bit rude. That is fairness to me. Um, and I found that so interesting. And with the the relationships and things, did you started off with the scene in, in the bar with Julian and, and when did Edith come about? Was she kind of hanging around in your mind? Did you know that this was always going to be a part of Ava's story going forwards? So Edith came in relatively early in the original draft. I think it was the fourth chapter or so, just because I'd determined myself that Ava and Julian weren't falling deeply in love and maybe another writer would have gone, how do I then intensify this heterosexual relationship? But um, the writer that I am, I was like, how do I give her a girlfriend that she does fall in love with? So that's how Edith came in, really. Um, And what we did later then was when I looked at the finished manuscript there was just something awful about that that I couldn't put my finger on and then my agent Harriet who's an excellent editor in her own right just said why not push Edith back a bit and it might seem like you're marginalizing that relationship to you but actually what it's going to do is give it the space so send Julian away let this one develop on its own terms and I think that was absolutely the right call both for that book and because it's really important for relationships between women to be presented as possible without male input. And obviously that's a tension in the book that's never fully resolved or weighed in on either way. And even if they were both lesbians and had absolutely no contact with men in any kind of capacity romantically, you know, you're still shaped inextricably by heteronormativity and that's something that's going to affect my writing going forward for sure but it was definitely an interesting way not only to give that relationship space to be on its own terms but also to question everything about how I'd shown it because then I was rewriting all these scenes where Julian had been much more of a presence and it's like do I just excise him from all this or do I have Ava think about him instead and sometimes I did one sometimes the other but as that happened it made me rethink about all the ways that he was implicitly shaping their relationship even when not there. Uh, yeah, it's. I also love, which I just remembered now, the other characters, um, like all the Julian friend, Julian's friends at the parties, I love them because they were so, I can't tell you how many men that I know that are like that awful, privately educated white men that have those really archaic ideologies and ideas. And I think, I think there was the other thing about the book, I mean, I've been talking about it quite seriously about the empathy and, you know, you cover loads of topics, but the the real other thing that shines through is it's really funny. Like it's, very funny I was laughing and there was so many snippets I was like oh my god I can picture myself in this scene this is just feels so true to me I'd be so interested interested to know like generationally how different people have read the book have you like have your parents read it or has anyone who's older because it does it feels to me so um 
of its t- like I I can fit I could fit myself into that story and I could know who those people are like I've I've met them and I I understand what they're thinking and I I I wonder if that's something that doesn't always translate into someone who's maybe like sixty or seventy. Have you had any reception from from that? I always find that so interesting, especially when I talk about things with my mom and we have a really different idea about you know what life is like. To be honest. Well, I cannot discuss it with my parents. I don't know if they read it and I really don't want to because anything that I wrote going forward, every time there was anything vaguely sexual and then I'd be like, do I have to discuss this with my parents later? So that's completely out. <laughs> you can tell I'm um, Ireland born Irish in that respect, I guess. Or maybe other Irish families are different, but um, more generally, there's been a pretty good range of reception. Like I I mean, we got a quote from Hilary Mantel, which was lovely. And a lot of writers from other generations have responded really warmly to it. But I think it depends on what element of it, because liking a book is such an individual thing. And maybe for some people, the things that make them feel heard are the things that will make other people understand a group of people that they didn't previously but I also just feel really badly placed to say how much of anything in my novel is generational because I don't know what it's like to be in a previous generation you know it's like my decision about which city to write in possibly I could change a number of things and have the book take place in another city but I haven't been so how would I know what to change and I do find it a little bit off when people discuss especially queer stories through a lens of them being ones that could only happen now. Of course, with the apparatus of social acceptance and understanding, they could often only happen now. But one of the reasons Emma Donoghue is a, a writer I admire so much is because a lot of her work focuses on going back to history and putting the lesbians in, and the same with Sarah Waters. And I think it's really important as we push deservedly for more LGBT representation to always keep in mind that we're showing what has always happened, even though the form that it takes will obviously be informed by our history now. Yeah, no, you're completely right to point that out. And it is so true that we had to rewrite and kind of reinstate those stories back into the past, because as you say, they would have been existed, they just would have been doctored out by whoever the reigning people were that were kind of creating and writing or even, you know, changing narratives that exist. So that's definitely a really pertinent point to to make. I find it interesting that you said you weren't, wouldn't, haven't let your parents read it or hope they haven't read it. Um, I feel the same way. I do loads of episodes of my podcast about sex and like masturbation stuff. And the other day I found out my dad was listening to my podcast and I almost died. And this is one of the things that I always wonder about writing is it must be, I wonder if you felt this, like, did you very much write with the intention that you would hope that, you know, your parents didn't read it? Because there is that awkwardness about sex, which definitely I, my mum's Irish, and I definitely know that it's something that probably exists largely in Irish households, but I think it does exist kind of universally as well. I think people do always find that a bit awkward. Did you have to really shed that fear of, you know, writing about these things, which could feel quite exposing, even though they're not about you, but they are sensitive topics, for want of a better word? Did you, was that something you contended with when you were writing or did you write and then think about it afterwards and think, oh shit, I hope they don't read it? I suppose the way I'd put it is I was always aware of that as an area of thought that can stop you from writing if you indulge it. So I just didn't. I think I'm relatively good at that because if I do go down different rabbit holes, I find it very all-consuming. So just ignore basically. And that's true for pretty much anything that I write it's always unpleasant to think of people talking about you behind your back and forming conclusions about it or people thinking of about you differently for reasons beyond your control or any of that and that's just all part and parcel of being received as a writer and I think people have a right to engage with your work however they want really um even if it's your parents viewing it in a certain way and Obviously, that's not a particularly important instance of that, but I think just the broader approach that once you put something out there, it's out there and you don't have the right for it to be read at all, let alone for it to be read in a different way. That's really how I inform how I think about writing, that when I'm making it, it's in a very different space to any of that, and I shouldn't see any link between that and how it's taken because you're invariably wrong when you try to predict how people will take it. But even if you're right, 
I'd never want to feel that I was writing something so that other people would have a particular response to it. Yeah, and I think I think if you did write like that again, it would you would feel the clunkiness of it because it would be controlled, and you would feel that there was some element of something kind of interfering. And um, and I I do think that you, I guess you have to let that go. For you, was the was the writing process? I always find it interesting because I think writers are always inherently very interesting. Like that, you you write a piece of work, and then often, you know that that's what you want to be people to be enjoying if, if they're going to read it as you say and and like how much do you do you like this side the interview side of things or do you really feel like oh god it's it's part and parcel of the job you do seem to have a really lovely pragmatism which I wish I possessed and able to kind of see a situation for what it is that kind of objectivity is something which I have not mastered um or do you do you wish that you could exist outside of your work and kind of not have to be um not responsible for it but what part of it is it that you love the most is it the writing is it having finished the product and being able to look back on it or do you actually really like engaging with people I'm always interested to know this side of things I like engaging but I don't like the fact that it happens from any kind of elevated cultural position like whenever I say anything about what I think about the novel there's always that voice in the back of my head saying I really hope no one thinks that this is more important than what they think about the novel and that's not me being modest or particular to my own case it's because whenever I read anyone else's novel I view the author's thoughts as at most an interesting interpretation so JK Rowling can think Dumbledore's gay all she wants she didn't write it so I don't have to agree And I think it would be disingenuous of me to then protect my own work as the only form of literature where the author's voice takes prominence. And then I guess relatedly to that, I feel differently about having conversations like we've just done where we swap ideas about the book and to the degree that I might know it slightly better from having seen it more times than I care to admit. Um, I might have different things to say, but it's not that my opinion matters more. But then the more you talk about your personal life and kind of accede to things that build you up as an important person in your own right, separate from the writing of books, that all just feels quite weird to me. Although, like you say, I do have that degree of detachment from it, really, because I think sometimes you just have to direct your mental energy towards what you find productive, which in my case is definitely writing books. And as we spoke about briefly before we started recording, you I couldn't celebrate because we're obviously in this bloody awful lockdown situation. But thankfully, I hope all your family is safe and everyone else is safe. But what will you carry on writing this time? Are you taking a nice relax? I actually hate the what next question. So I can't believe I just asked you that. But it is kind of time to sit back and reflect if you want to. Or how is this environment changing your creativity like do you feel that being in this position is kind of stifling you or is it making you want to maybe try and write a bit more where's your headspace at right now with everything that's going on yeah so it's difficult for me to filter out world events so that's definitely a a factor in that obviously if I spend hours scrolling Twitter finding out what's gone wrong next that's less time to write and also less inclination to do so and then the fact that it's happened to collide with book promo as well is difficult for me for the reasons that it might be different for a non-autistic writer in that for me it's still a lot of social contact that I'm not used to and you're kind of learning in this that our culture's obsession with the idea of being an introvert is very different to being autistic because all sorts of people who've been professing themselves one are now like, I miss going out several times a week. And I'm like, who the hell has the energy to do that? And also have a job, Jesus Christ. But um, in terms of my work, I'm finding it quite a solace, actually. So I have a draft of my second novel, but it's really sad. It's about two women who go insane and I don't feel like working on that. So I'm writing a third one now that's a bit more upbeat. And I'm taking pretty much the approach that I've described with the first one to it, where if there's a scene that I want to write, then I write it. If I have a clear sense of where it fits into the narrative, then well and good. If I don't, then I still just plonk it down and hope that something comes to me about where it goes. But Yeah, I think having that space to do something that mightn't work out that nobody else might like is really important for being able to actually enjoy it. 
Um, I was laughing, I know it's on mute, but I was laughing when you're saying about who's got the time because I, my job is I work from home and I'm freelance. So I always am in my flat most of the time. And there's that meme going around, you know, and everyone's like, oh my God, we're in quarantine. And then someone's like, when you find out your normal life is quarantine. And that's me. I've been, I started self-isolating before they told us to. So I've been doing it for like six weeks. And it's only like yesterday that I was like, oh, actually, I haven't really, <laughs> I haven't really been outside. I hadn't really, to be honest, it wasn't really impacting me, but I have to do the same as you. I, I'm sure that I don't get the same impact, but I can't go on Twitter and look at the news because otherwise it's just I can't sleep and it's too much um I'm so excited to read your next books they sound absolutely incredible I can't tell you how much an honor it's been to speak to you I was really worried that I wasn't going to ask you the right questions you're so you're such a delight to speak to um is there anything that you'd want to point anyone towards apart from obviously buying exciting times which is out now and I couldn't recommend it enough is there any any other piece of work or anything obviously there's no events going on but anything you'd want to point anyone towards at this time? Um, yeah, so Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendez was out just yesterday. I was able to speak to him on another podcast if you want to get a flavour for how he talks about his book first. And it's brilliant. It's a gay coming-of-age story from a really exciting new voice. So definitely recommend that. Coming up, okay, this one's a long time away, but because her publication's just been delayed, Little Scratch by Rebecca Watson. So I was lucky enough to read this one in advance. And I think the way I'd put it is, so this isn't on a direct comparison level, but what Bernadine Everisto does in Girl, Woman, Other with using your rhythms and broken sentences to recreate a thought process that doesn't always arrive in maybe the neat way that we're used to. She, she's very, very good at that, but it feels completely true to the story she's telling and it's also really absorbing. It's not one of those books that you read to see someone be stylistically clever. The style arises from telling the story of her heroine. So look out for a little scratch in 2021. Amazing. Thank you so much for these suggestions. I've written those down. Um, and thank you so much for speaking to me. I'm sure that everyone will absolutely love this episode. And yeah, I'll speak to you all soon. Bye. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.